different version of the book. This is chapter 27, Founding a Yoga School at Ranchi. Why are you averse to organizational work? The very first question, it hits us all, doesn't it? None of us particularly <laughs> like organizations. Um, a lot of us, when we came to Ananda, uh, you know, it was a part of why we were drawn to Ananda was there was this general anti-organizational sentiment you know, all around that it was like, oh, we won't get too organized and we won't have too many hierarchies and we won't have too many fixed rules and realities. But no matter how hard you try, as if a group of people come together, some organization is required. So let's see what organization Sri Yukteswar, this is Sri Yukteswar speaking. What is he referring to? I like one moment to pause here because he uses the word averse. Why are you averse? Like almost saying, what do you have against <laughs> that concept? I mean, what, what do you have so much uh, resistance. resistance to accept something that, of course, we will see was part of his dharma? I mean, this is why he was sent on earth. So we can already see Sri Uteshwar, you know, like kind of, you know, identifying those things that needed to be in place, uh, that needed to be understood in Yogananda's mind uh, in order to really start uh, the mission that he was asked um, to start. And, and I like that. It's like Sri Uteshwar was already correcting him a little bit with that, you know, thought patterns where he was already almost creating a wall from what I think I'm called to do and versus what God is calling out to me to do. Master's question startled me a bit. It is true that my private conviction at the time was that organizations were hornets' nests. It is a thankless task, sir, I answered. No matter what the leader does or does not, he is criticized. Of course, Yogananda is picking it up from the perspective of a leader, and the majority of us pick it up from the perspective of, you know, just being a part of it. For us, in our minds, it's like, ah, the leaders having all the fun, and the leaders get to do whatever they want, and they get to decide, you know, who does what and who does how. And the leaders think, like, I don't want to deal with this because no matter what one does, or does not do, you're going to be criticized. Everybody's all the time going to say, you could have done that better. This is not how it should be. You ought to have done it this way. Oh, that person's not very happy with this. And this other person says that they could have done it better because they have the right skills and so on and so forth. And no matter what happens in an organization, almost everybody thinks it can be done better. <laughs> almost everybody. It doesn't matter who it is and what their thoughts are. And to a certain degree, especially when we look at our lives in Ananda, that's what promotes growth. <laughs> that's the amazing thing about being in an organization. In our terms, we'd call that being in a community. But that's what helps us grow because you get to rub against people. You get to kind of have your own ideas challenged. You try to aspire to higher things and say, I could have done it better. And it's possible that you could have. But then you get an opportunity to actually show that you could do it better because it's easy to talk about it. So there's a great side to an organization. And this is what we'll try to kind of uh, look into and explore a little bit more. Do you want the whole divine chana, which is the milk curd, for yourself alone? 
my guru's retort was accompanied by a stern glance. Could you or anyone else achieve God contact through yoga if a line of generous hearted masters had not been willing to convey their knowledge to others? He added, God is the honey. Organizations are the hives. Both are necessary. Any form is useless, of course, without the spirit. But why should you not start busy hives full of the spiritual nectar? Now again, organizations are an interesting thing to tune into. You know, our body is an organization. You may say that, oh, you know, I don't like to figure out, I don't like rules, I don't like routines, I don't want to have to, you know, especially on the spiritual part, there's this idea that I have to, my individuality has to really shine forth and my uniqueness and how God wants to express himself through me must be unstifled by any larger realities. But your very being, that which you call yourself, is very much an organization. You think your organs where the word organization comes from, do you think they would just be able to figure it all out on their own? Or do you think they need to really interact and work with one another? The universe is an organization. Our solar system is an organization with the sun as the leader and everybody else doing what they need to do. They're doing their own individual work. And if I were to look at them individually, I'd say, yeah, yeah, Jupiter has its own deal and Saturn has its own deal and Mars has its own deal. But they're all working together as well as one, each one doing just what they need to do to keep the whole functioning. Your family is an organization, albeit not a very <laughs> tight, efficient organization at times. But that's what it is. You've got a head. You've got one of the parent is an HR head and one of the parent is the operations head and so on and so forth. And the kids tend to be the <laughs> who think that they are the slavish employees. But what are the parents really trying to do is but to uplift their own children and so on and so forth. If we look in nature, if we look into anything and here they've used a beautiful image of a hive and the bee. And yes, the bees can go and get as much nectar as they want, but without the hive, they cannot transform the nectar into honey. And without transforming it into honey, they cannot feed the rest of the hive with it. Individually, any bee can go and say, I've had my nectar, you know, now, if the other bees have their nectar or not, but no, they go get their nectar and they share and they transform their nectar. Just as we receive knowledge, we transform it with our own experience, and then we share that honey with others. In little ways, in large ways, none of that particularly matters. I think he was also trying to um, open up to Yogananda a little bit about compassion, you mm. know, like, just like, why don't you just, whatever you receive, you know, just willingly, you know, develop that love, that compassion, even though he already had, but there is a point here of many of us, whenever we receive some sort of inspiration or we feel that, you know, the blessings are pouring onto us or we even feel we are, you know, growing spiritually, you know, a little bit faster than usual. 
there is a tendency in all of us to just want and just to hold this within ourselves and not to share, you know, in case that we are afraid that the blessings are going to be away or that growth is going to be taken away. And we become a little bit self-absorbed and, and self-involved. And what happens is like we stop that, those blessings from keep moving forward and expanding and really going where they need to go because we are simply channels. I mean, do you think that when we receive a blessing, the power is just only holding it with ourselves, within ourselves? Or do you think that bless, blessing will increase the more we share it outwardly. So I think that Sri Yuteswar, in his own way and through this example, he helped Yogananda and eventually to all of us here right now studying this, like whatever we receive, let's find ways to amplify that blessing by willingly and not being afraid because that's also like a spiritual selfishness. You know, like almost spiritual greed. The more I have, the more I receive, the more I want to keep it to myself. And that's what develops spiritual ego. And, and we just create this delusion that it's just all about us. And so it's very important for us um, keep that in mind. Whatever we feel that an unusual blessing has been descended, a, a different, more uplifted state of consciousness has come to us whenever we receive an insight and inspiration. Find a way, yes, first of all, to integrate it within yourself, but soon after, find a way to share it because only then that blessing will really be amplified and multiplied and, and really will have the uh, effect that, that God really is hoping that that blessing uh, will go and reach out and spread out uh, everywhere. Of course, there's a flip side to organizations, isn't there? When uh, <laughs> taking the bees in the hive an analogy, where they forget so to, a lot about the bees and they get really excited about the hive and how beautiful and how large can this hive be and how much more powerful can this hive get. And that's, you know, in a sense, also a great learning for the majority of us, where our awareness and attention is going to go. And you can't hide from it, is what we're trying to say. Yes, you can think that you can do it by yourself, but Unless we're a self-realized master, the majority of us don't have the power really. I mean, we can talk here, we can sit here, we can sit with the autobiography and pretend like, you know, we're like so well connected to every word here and every word that pours forth from us is some, you know, wisdom dripped. But no, it isn't because it's not going to transform you. It might give you some thoughts to think about. It might give you some ideas on how to, but only a great master. That's why the need for a guru can really transform us. But if individually we cannot do it, as a group, we usually can. We often joke and say, if individually we can't be become a saint, but at least if all of us come together with the few positive qualities that we're all bringing, together we can make one complete saint. 
Christ in the Bible says, where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Two or more. Now, of course, he doesn't mean to say if one person thinks of me, I won't come to him. I need a minimum of two or I need at least more than two. time precious. No, but he's trying to emphasize the need for coming together with like-minded people to amplify the power. And this is what we need. However, when we come together and certain organization is needed, what's very important is to always remember that it's about the individual. The organization is about the individual and not about the structure or the form. It's not about the hive, even though the hive allows us to store and to manage that honey, but it's about the bees. Uh, Swami Kriyananda, in all our communities, they have what's called a spiritual director and there's also a general manager. So one really focuses on the spiritual vibration and the upliftment of the community, of the people. And one is a much more practical reality of, you know, just figuring out from finances to buildings to the laws that regulate organizations and so on and so forth. And when somebody once asked Swami, Swamiji, what's the you know, main purpose of the spiritual director? What's, what would you say is one of their main responsibilities? And of course, at different times, he's given different answers. But this one was very particular, in which he said, the job of the spiritual director is to protect the individual from the organization. So it's the job of a spiritual director not to let the organization become more important. And always remember that it's the individual, no matter what, no matter how that individual may help the organization, What's more important is, is the individual being helped in the process? Is the individual going to grow spiritually? Even if the organization were to fail, as Swamiji said, if I fail even one individual, I have failed completely. And so that's an awareness that we need to hold. If ever you get together in groups, because this is what Yogananda recommended. He says, get together with like-minded people, buy land, live together, so essentially, he's, you know, we're going to form little communities that are going to require certain amounts of organizations. But keep this always in the top of your mind. Two things. Don't be averse to organization because there's power when people come together. But don't get power hungry as an individual, which is, again, one of those little things that can draw us away. And secondly, always remember, it's about the individual. No matter how large any form becomes, it's still only about the individual. His counsel moved me deeply. Although I made no outward reply, an adamant resolution arose in my breast. I would share with my fellows, as so far as lay in my power, the unshackling truths I had learned at my Guru's feet. Lord, I prayed, may thy love shine forever on the sanctuary of my devotion, and may I be able to awaken that love in other hearts. Yogananda later on called this as one of the highest prayers that anybody can pray. So if you want a prayer that you're looking for that would really be what you would do, the best prayer in the world, this is one of those. Did you want to say something? Yeah, I really love this paragraph because Yogananda says, even though I made no outward reply, I made an inner resolution to make this happen. 
There is a big difference from many of us who, when we feel inspired to practice something, to do something, we talk a lot <laughs> about it. And all the things that we are going to do and all the goals that we, you know, all the resolutions that we need to accomplish, and we do pretty much nothing about it, maybe after one or two days or we forget about it. And we can even barely accomplish, you know, to meditate twice a day and to energize twice a day and to do just the most simple things. But, you know, we just get excited. We talk about it, all the things that we are going to do. And we accomplish very little. Yogananda here said nothing. The resolution was so strong. It didn't need any outward expression, no words. I mean, that energy wasn't even dissipated in talking about it. But that resolution was so deep that moment that that's when his movement really started. That's when his organization started in his heart, that resolution. And from this day onward, that became, you know, his mission. I'm going to, you know, whatever I do, whatever God gives me, this is going to be. I'm going to share thy love forever with everyone in the sanctuary of everyone's hearts. And I really loved this little interaction because he didn't need to promise anything to his guru. He didn't have to, you know, prove anything. It was just like such a strong, I mean, we don't have even the magnetism to accomplish something spiritually, even within a day. And this resolution attracted the organization he created. So anyway, I, I found this line like, wow, I, I, I wish and I'm going to work <laughs> towards having those kind of inner resolutions that whatever I think I'm going to do, um, it's not necessary for me to talk about it, but to do it and magnetize myself by always doing uh, whatever I resolutely um, promise myself to accomplish. Reminds me of Swamiji's resolution when yeah. he first heard, when That's, he first heard Yogananda yes. talk about the need for community. Swami said, I inwardly resolved that I would fulfill that aspect of my Guru's work and Similarly, then, not yeah. like, hey, guys, you know what? I'm going to do that part. Yeah. Master told me, so I'm going to do it. Do you want to do it with me? Do you want to do it with me? Just inwardly. And in, and in that case, when um, Swamiji heard that, you know, idea from Master in a lecture, you know, to 800 people, Yogananda wasn't even addressing personally to Swami Kriyananda. I mean, it wasn't even like a personal advice. It didn't come to Swami Kriyananda in that form. Like the guru sitting him next to him, you know, I have a mission for you. Okay, write down all the things that I hope. He was just simply putting that thought in the ether, just boom, to 800 people. And from all those 800 people, Swamiji, boom, picked up that thought put it into his heart and inwardly, as Yogananda did here, inwardly, he said to Yogananda, I'm going to make of this my mission.
I'm going to help you in this particular aspect of your work. And this was 70, 60 years ago. And through that inner resolution, you and you and you and me are here. I mean, that's what it takes, a strong resolution, and you have the power to change the world. Wow. <laughs> On a previous occasion, before I had joined the Monas most unexpected remark. How you will miss the companionship of a wife in your old age, <laughs> he had said. Do you not agree that the family man, engaged in useful work to maintain his wife and children, thus plays a rewarding role in God's eyes? Sir, I had protested in alarm, you know that my desire in this life is to espouse only the cosmic beloved. Master had laughed so merrily that I understood his observation was made merely as a test of my faith. Remember, he said slowly, that he who discards his worldly duties can justify himself only by assuming some kind of responsibility toward a much larger family. These are, again, very, very powerful words because on the spiritual path, we're like, oh, if only I could, didn't have to do this and only if I didn't have that responsibility. I mean, how many people have told us, if only I wasn't working, if only I didn't already have children, if only I hadn't married on so-and-so date, you know, I would be now doing so much more. But the majority, that's not, not only not true, but it's not even helpful because had they discarded that responsibility, could they have taken a larger responsibility or not? Imagine in your household, I mean, we're, we're talking about organizations. We said how a family itself is an organization. How harmonious is your organization? How clear are you in the upliftment of those people in your organization? How much do you fight and bicker in your organization? How much are you constantly, how much of your organization is a power struggle, whether it be parents, whether it be children, how much of your organization is, I'm just doing my own thing and you do your People, deeply directed, singularly in one purpose, deeply uplifted and inspired by that purpose, what do you think we'll be able to do on a larger scale? And that's a very, very important reality for us to contend with because again it's like you can think of what you could have done or what you would have wished to have done but if in the tiny little reality the tiny little organization that that has been given to you call the family call those responsibilities if that hasn't been able to fully engage you in a way that it uplifts everybody in your care what beyond that do you have in mind to do? And if in fact you need to abdicate this responsibility, the question is, for what larger responsibility will you abdicate this? In the Gita, Krishna puts it this way, when a lower dharma conflicts with a higher dharma, then the lower ceases to be your dharma. And this is an important way to test what's going on in my life. 
because we all have potentially multiple dharmas doing anything that awakens greater love greater awareness a greater self offering to god is dharma putting it that way very simply anything that lifts us closer to the light is dharma but there are multiple ways that we could be lifted up and the way to choose which one is most appropriate is what's the higher dharma versus what's the lower dharma what's the smaller dharma which is what's the larger dharma and in this particular case sri yukteswar's ensuring that yogananda realizes this that leaving the responsibility or not having to go the direction of having a responsibility of a family can only be justified if it's because you're going to do something that includes a far larger number of people in your own process of upliftment yeah in fact it's like most like you know sri uteswar is asking all of us you know if are you going to choose to contract yourself or are you willing to expand and this is a fight that we will be constantly dealing with you know are we going to expand whenever we don't have those responsibilities or we are going to again keep redirecting that energy towards us therefore becoming smaller smaller and smaller so i like to see it in that way whenever i i see what decision do i need to make in every given situation even throughout the day you know sometimes i find myself in these two options and and i and and i try to see in this way if i choose this is it, is it going to expand my consciousness my sympathies i'm stretching myself a little bit more i'm sacrificing a little aspect of my privacy in order to expand my realities and if so i will choose that and of course you will need to find your balance i mean we are not going no saying here you know to sacrifice your own health your own things you know it's not about that but but always see it in those terms is this decision going to expand my reality where i will be able and given the opportunity to help and uplift others and therefore changing myself in the process or i'm going to put aside and just uh, choose selfishness So this is something that all of us will uh, be asked and faced be with. faced to yeah The ideal of an all-sided education for youth had always been close to my heart I saw clearly the arid results of ordinary instruction aimed only at the development of body and intellect moral and spiritual values without whose appreciation no man can approach happiness were yet lacking in the formal curriculum i determined to found a school where young boys could develop to the full stature of manhood my first step in that direction was made with seven children at the dhika at dhika a small country site in bengal so this is where yogananda started now where did he start with he didn't say Okay now I've learned all these things and I have kriya and I have all these things and uh, I I need to be a teacher I need to share kriya yoga with the world and everyone must know about it no you know <laughs> a lot of us again on the spiritual journey it's like 
ah, if I'm not sharing the teachings, if I'm not teaching them, if I'm not a teacher, if people don't come to me for advice, and we feel that those people who are doing that, they are the ones spiritually more mature or advanced, but that's not true at all. You know, again, as I said, certain karmas come, certain responsibilities come. They're only there for our good, mostly. Not necessarily because we have something, and when I say we, I mean the larger we of whoever else, have something that amazing to offer to this world. What we do need is that we grow constantly and constantly. So what does Yogananda do? He takes the one experience he knows he's had, and he says, let me start with that. And what was his experience? He never enjoyed education. He never really understood the system that was created that was solely for the intellect, solely to get jobs, solely with the intention to cram our heads with as much information as we possibly can hold, which we usually cannot hold. And he said, no, I want to find a way because my own life taught me that this one so important thing, if Yogananda didn't have Sri Yukteswar, I mean, Yogananda would have been like a substandard student in school and college who, who wouldn't have gotten a job anywhere easily. Who, you know, I mean, just because that's it. For children, that's it. Our education system is our, their only vehicle for them to expand and open up to a greater reality. Now, Yogananda was fortunate to have had Sri Yukteswar. Of course, his heart lay with God, so that was an entire different direction. But he realized that for the majority of these children, we need to develop all aspects of their being, especially moral and spiritual, not because we need them all to give their lives to God, but because without that vibrational resonance, nothing else makes sense. You can be in a job completely depressed, unhappy, or even extremely excited all the time, but you're not really fulfilled. Nothing about that job per se is what's going to fill you. It's how you're able to receive, how you're able to process that, in what relationship you put it in your own life and attitudes that makes the job whether fulfilling or not. And so on and so forth with every aspect, whether it's family, whether it's other aspects, whether it's friends, responsibilities, willpower, doing more, ambition. And so that became his thing. Okay, this is an experience I had. I realized this is lacking in my life because of the education I had. Now let me see what I can do perhaps to help others not have to go through that. I like the fact that he started small, mm. seven children, that's all. He didn't need more than that, just seven children, just to experiment, to, to you know, feel it out, to see what works, what doesn't work. He didn't start even by a big place, by this, by that, asking for the financial support. Nothing. Seven children. That's all that it took him to start something huge. And this is a good point for us to remember. Every time we want to start a new project, a business, to make into motion, you know, to put into motion a great inspiration or, 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 or something that will benefit many people, don't start too big. Uh, don't um, stretch yourself. Stretch yourself too, too thin. Th yeah, too thin. Just 
simple, just, just three, two, four things, seven children. That's all you need. And from there, that very magnetism will attract the rest. So for me here, that's the point. Whenever you start, start small. And that's how Swami Kriyananda started Ananda as well. Just only one, him. <laughs> he was his own community. He didn't have anyone. Then soon after, Naya Swami Jaya came in the middle of nowhere. Then Naya Swami Shivani. And you know, there were like five of them living in a property, you know, out nowhere, you know, by themselves. And now, you know, we are thousands of, and thousands of us. So start always small. And once you make that very strong, everything will unfold from there. A year later in 1918, through the generosity of Sir Manindra Chandra Nandi, the Maharaja of Kasim Bazar, I was able to transfer my fast-growing group to Ranchi. This town in Bihar, about 200 miles from Calcutta, is blessed with one of the most helpful climates. The Kashim Bazar Palace in Ranchi was transformed into the headquarters for the new school, which I called Brahmacharya Vidyale, in accordance with the educational ideals of the rishis. Yogananda puts here a little footnote, which is also just uh, just uh, fun to kind of tune into is we know of these four what are called ashrams or stages in in a lifespan of an individual as the rishis saw it and you've got the first stages which is brahmacharya right which is I mean you think of it in terms of oh it's celibacy or the children need to but it's not celibacy per se first of all brahmacharya means to follow brahman to follow in the footsteps of brahman means first really tune into the spirit of why we're here in the first place. First, we need to tune in and learn. And in order to tune in and learn, we can't have our energies too scattered. That's why as in that age, as much that energy becomes available to us to be directed towards the receiving and attuning to our life, that's what's important and therefore celibacy became like a big part of that because it was a large amount of that life force that shouldn't be wantonly wasted and to be held and to be used and to be directed in the attainment of wisdom of what life truly is all about from brahmacharya came grihast the household life which means all that now you've understood about what life is you expand from beyond yourself. Grihast doesn't mean that, oh, you have to have a wife and you have to have children. And Grihast means you take what you've received and you expand to include more people. The best way to include more people is through a family. Because you can't include people by teaching. You can't include by saying, this is what I learned, this is what I learned, this is what I learned. Because the truth is, you've not really learned anything yet because you've not really put into practice anything yet. Just like a scientist can learn all the formulas, but it's only when he actually starts working with the formulas does he realize whether he knows what he's doing at all. And so Grihast is where we put into practice that which we learned. And that's another very important thing. Whether you get married and have a family or not, 
that's very important. Because in living with one another, in constantly rubbing against another, this is the organization part here, in constantly having that, you know, what's the right word here, <laughs> even though it sounds like it's the worst thing, but this Flashing. is what's needed. The polishing of our own being constantly, and the polishing comes to us from people. And if you don't have it in a family, you will have it in some other fashion. You'll have it at work. If you don't have it at work, you'll have it with your friends or with those who style themselves to be your enemies. One way or the other, you're going to have to test these principles that you learned and gained throughout your youth. Mm -hmm. Then comes the Vanaprast Ashram. Now, Vanaprast is where having, having trained having given all that you learned in a practical form to the people around you, you now allow them to take on the next form of training for the next level of people. And you don't disappear. You remain, but you remain solely as a spiritual advisor. And so now what you're doing is you're starting to disengage a little and return back into the original thing that you learned, which was that the purpose of life is eventually to merge into bliss. Then I share how bliss can be demonstrated and lived and experienced in our daily lives with people, shared that knowledge. Now I allow those people who I shared with to come up and continue that process. So when your children become grihasthis, then you become a vanaprasthi. And you can apply that to whatever, even if you don't have children and if you don't have a family. But you're still there supporting. And then finally, you get into the sanya stage where you realize, all right, my work here is done. I have, to the best of my ability, perfected my consciousness in this world, through my worldly experiences, through my responsibilities, now I'm going to perfect it solely inwardly and try to withdraw even further away from the outward pulls of this world. So this is how they expressed at least the most balanced way for us to live. Almost none of us follow this at all. <laughs> I mean, we don't even have an awareness of these stages at all in our lives. So it might be just helpful wherever you are right now you know, it has not really much to do with age. If you skip the brahmacharya stage because you didn't learn these things, now is the time to become a brahmachari. Not in the outward manifestation, but in the, the reality that I'm here to follow in the footsteps of Brahman. Because bliss is what I'm seeking. And then if you have done a little bit of that, now see if you're a grihasti, even if you don't have a family. Who can I share with? Who do I include? in my life with whom I figure out whether I've actually understood anything or not. Because to read and say it's good to be kind is an entirely different thing than if you are kind every day of your life or not. To read that, you know, everybody is God is an entirely different thing to be able to actually practice and treat everyone as God. And you won't be able to do it if you're just by yourself, working on your own individual relationship with the divine, because God's all around you all the time. He's asking you, he's calling out to you, relate to me here as well, here I am. 
and so on and so forth. So Brahmacharya Vidyalaya is what he called it. At Ranchi, I organized an educational program for both grammar and high school grades. It included, and these are fun uh, subjects, mm -hmm. agricultural, industrial, commercial, and academic subjects. So there was a lot of like, academic subjects, but agricultural, the kids did a lot of you know, farming, industrial, they were made to make things, commercial, they started their own businesses, even while they were at school. So they were really being asked to train what you're learning, put it into practice. It's not enough to say, okay, this fruit has vitamins and this thing has minerals and this rice does this way and this. Grow it. See what those vitamins and minerals are. Consume it. Understand what's the balance of a right diet right here and right now. Not enough to study the economics of the world economies, but to start a business right now and see what it takes to actually understand the flow of money, the flow of prosperity. It, it seems to me he wanted to make them independent yeah. and responsible and creative and to have a sense of all aspects of life and not just intellectually oriented. I mean, this part here, agriculture. I mean, <laughs> just like that, you know, just get dirty with your hands, have a connection with nature, <clears throat> with, you know, what nature gives and provides. And I, I just love the fact he just implemented these four basic aspects that made them so independent and mature and just be able to be by themselves and make things happen. The students were also taught yoga, concentration, and meditation, and a unique system of physical development, Yogoda, whose principles I had discovered in 1916. Yogoda, of course, is what we now call the energization exercises. Realizing that man's body is like an electric battery, I reasoned that it could be recharged with energy through the direct agency of the human will, 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 will or large is possible without willing, man can avail himself of his prime mover, will, to renew his bodily tissues without burdensome apparatus or by which the life force centered in man's medulla oblongata can be consciously and instantly recharged from the unlimited supply of cosmic energy. For those of us who are practicing the energization exercises, we need to be constantly inspired by them. You know, every time we need to be reminded that these are the most powerful thing that perhaps we have in this particular life right now. Uh, yeah, we might say that Kriya is the most amazing thing, but for the majority of us to be really, really humbly truthful, Kriya will take a while. <laughs> Energization, on the other hand, because we tend to easily slip into tamas. Energization is our vehicle to through rajas into sattva. And only when you are in sattva at the end of your exercises that you can truly go deeper and deeper in your meditation. So get into the energization exercises more and more. Make it your lifelong mission to embrace the exercises every day just a little bit more until one day it really feels to you as the weapon 
against delusion that Yogananda meant it to be. And for those of you who do not know the energization or being uh, introduced to it for the first time here, um, you know, find out a way to learn them because they are in fact <laughs> extremely amazing. <laughs> the boys responded wonderfully to the training, developing extraordinary ability to shift the life force from one part of the body to another and to sit in perfect poise in difficult body postures. Sometimes when, you know, even though I came to Ananda at the age of 21, you all will wonder, I wish we had learned these things earlier because my body was just so unprepared. The Couldn't legs, yeah, the, the legs would hurt, the back would hurt. You know, a few minutes you would sit and it'd be like I was in hell or something like we're so we're so subconscious in the fact that we need to move and remain agitated. The moment we have to consciously sit still, the whole body rebels against it. Because we've never done that before. And we don't think about it. You know, we're sitting, I'm studying, and then I shift, then I move, then I do this, then I'm scratching here, then I'm sometimes I'm like this, sometimes I'm like this, then I sit like this. You know, it's just like I'm not aware. I think I'm sitting. I think I'm just, you know, sitting here and I'm studying and wow, I'm just engrossed in this novel, but I'm not. Because the body can't quite figure out what it needs to do. But when we start to sit for meditation, suddenly we realize, wait a minute, you know, every part of my body wants to, is aching, is hurting, wants to stretch, wants to move. And if only as children, because the, you've, have you ever seen children's bodies? They're so limber. They can go, you know, all over the Flexible, place. Yeah. And if we had trained our bodies at that age, wow, wouldn't it have been just amazing today? But, you know, this is what, this is what the masters planned out for us. No complaints here. However, if there is an opportunity now for a younger generation to learn some of these things, boy, should they go for it. They performed feats of strength and endurance which many powerful adults could not equal. My youngest brother, Vishnu Charan Ghosh, joined the Ranchi school. He later became a leading physical culturist in Bengal. He and one of his students traveled to Europe and America, giving exhibitions of strength and skill, which amazed the university savants, including those at Columbia University in New York. So Vishnu Charan Ghosh, for those of you who don't know, was the guru of Bikram Ghosh, was it? That mm -hmm. Ghosh was his name, yeah. Um, the founder of, you know, hot yoga, power yoga, Bikram yoga. And so Bikram yoga essentially took the principles of energization which Vishnu Ghosh would teach uh, and combined it with Hatha Yoga and created this new kind of form of yoga so to speak which became extremely popular around the world but that's where he drew his inspiration from if you go to um, where Yogananda's childhood home is, is in Calcutta called Four Garpa Road at the end of the road yeah because Yogananda himself went away to, to America at a very early age. And so the majority of the people even around his home and in Calcutta didn't really know that much about his existence. He, of course, became extremely popular in the West. But Vishnu Ghosh, his brother, became, you know, this really into bodybuilding and he used the energization exercises really to develop a very, very strong physical reality. And he's got in that lane a statue dedicated to him, Vishnu Charan Ghosh, because he really took what Yogananda gave him 
and he perfected it into an art where so many people came and learned these principles from him from the perspective of course of having as healthy and as strong a body as possible at the end of the first year at ranchi are we at the end anyway maybe we can finish this paragraph let's finish this paragraph at the end of the first year at ranchi applications for admission reached 2000 but the school which at the time was solely residential could accommodate only about 100 instruction for day students was soon added so as narayani was saying from 7 <laughs> in 2 years to 2000 at least yeah. potentially interested students and parents who wanted their children to have this experience and that's the that's the true power of that resolution that yogananda made i'm going to do this i'm going to share everything that i have learned but not from you know i'm going to give a lot of talks and a lot of lectures i'm going to find something that's really real where we can all come together and all live this way together and that's really where that power comes from probably we'll explore more about it next week but I just love the fact that Yogananda really concentrated uh, on kids education as the first uh, tool how kids could have control of their life force. Mm-hmm. It's like he realized that if a kid knows how to control his energy, he knows everything in life. It's like if you know how to channel your energy where to redirect it where to send it how to withdraw it i mean you have everything in this world you can manifest you can support you can uplift you can this you can that i just love the fact that that's what he's focusing on in this chapter and about education we need to teach our children how to have control of themselves because one day once they know that they'll be able really we are helping them to mature and to become responsible for their own actions and for their own energy uh, they they don't realize the power of control that energy and here in ananda we teach children how to do that but in a very fun way where they start experimenting what i feel when i put this energy out and how i feel when i scatter this energy into this other way and we give children a taste where they can experience by themselves what it means to be master of that energy right now there is a summer camp yeah. going on we have around 35 kids who are learning right now exactly this how can i use my energy to help other people to help myself and to really add to the environment that i am and you see that children who are being taught in this particularly in this particularly they become extraordinary human beings extraordinary 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 human beings so anyway i'm i'm loving this <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing on how you can and just you know it's taking us through his learning as well yeah 
So two things we focused on today, of course, education, which is very, very vital, but also just organization. Mm -hmm. And uh, for the majority of us, as we said, our home is our organization. And let's just see what perhaps if there are a few things that we tuned into today that we can implement uh, today itself. See tomorrow, you tomorrow. We, we have, have Naya Swami's Jyotish and Devi who will be doing their monthly satsang.